1: The study of the universe spans almost inconceivable extremes of size and distance and time. From the vast island of stars we call a galaxy,
0: to the tiny atom and the particles that comprise it. I was never good at constellations. I wanted to be. I tried. You know, The night sky is beautiful, and immense, and complicated, and I just never had the memory for what was brighter, or dimmer, or closer to what else. From my vantage point, they all look more or less the same. It was more like memorizing the dictionary than birdwatching to me.
1: I feel like you're in the minority there, Andrew. I think a lot of people over the history of human experience have been very invested in the night sky.
0: Oh, absolutely. You know, astronomy, looking at each star and following its regular habits, it's been our species' great fascination. And naturally, we applied a certain degree of measured scrutiny on the heavens to see how varied and fascinating the stars actually are.
1: I don't even know what you're going to be talking about yet, but I've already heard measured.
0: (laughs) Right, you can see right through me. Studying each point of light and comparing its movements, its brightness, and its color reveals a real stunning diversity. Some of those stars have incredible stories to tell, and not just about themselves, but about humanity's place in the universe. I'm Andrew Middleton.
1: I'm Leah Rechtman.
0: And this is Measure for Measure, a little show sizing up our world. We measure time and geography using the stars, but exciting things have happened when we've learned how to measure the stars themselves.
1: Can you take us back a little bit? I mean, I know the history of astronomy is very long, but, you know, where we start using measurement.
0: For sure. And, and I first want to give some credit. The ancient Babylonians, the Aztec, the Mayans, there are plenty of cultures throughout history that have studied the heavens in this way. But at least for our story, we're going to start in the mid 1500s at about the time Henry VIII was on his very last wife. Polish astronomer and scholar Nicholas Copernicus.
1: This is the Copernicus, right?
0: The Copernicus. Yeah. He pitched his sun-centered model of the solar system. He knew it wasn't going to be fun fending off the inevitable pushback. And he had the good judgment to publish just before he died.
1: Does that mean that he delayed publishing for many years until his death was imminent?
0: Oh, yeah. No, he was sitting on his work for a long time. Wow. And he was right. He got plenty of pushback post-mortem, not just from theologians like Martin Luther and the Pope, but from other astronomers. You know, the defenders of the old Earth-centered model knew that there was no way that the Earth moved.
1: They knew. They were certain.
0: (laughs) They were... Well, yeah, when you when you look at the scenery go by from your carriage, the lampposts by the street pass quickly, the houses and the churches and the fields appear to move slower, and the mountains in the far distance barely seem to move at all.
1: Yes, I often feel that when I'm looking up at the scenery from my horse-drawn carriage.
0: Sure, sure. But from the mindset of these 16th-century astronomers, you know, they're looking at the stars, and if the Earth was traveling huge distances from one side of the sun to the other and back again, shouldn't we be able to see the stars moving around like we were jumping into hyperspace? We don't. The stars don't move like that at all. And it was really solid reasoning for the time. From their vantage point, they couldn't see the stars moving in the background. What those astronomers didn't realize was that even the closest stars are actually just much, much, much farther away than anyone dared to imagine.
1: So they looked like they weren't moving because they were so far away that the distance we were moving in relation to them was really small?
0: Yeah, that's a good way to think about it. It took 200 years for astronomers to create precise enough technology to see that on either side of Earth's orbit, the stars do appear to move a tiny, tiny bit. Now, astronomers would observe a star in January and then check in on it six months later in June when the Earth is 300 million kilometers away on the other side of the Sun. Comparing the two views from those two vantage points is like kind of how our eyes work. Having two eyes facing forward and sending slightly different images from slightly different perspectives Is what gives us depth perception.
1: It's sort of like if you were to put your hand over one eye and then your hand over the other eye and see the change.
0: Exactly. And that change is called parallax. Parallax. Yeah. So, with a telescope and some trigonometry, scientists could finally see how far away the stars actually were by comparing the two images taken from the vantage point of one side of the Earth compared to the other. The stars weren't just points of light on a celestial bowl or a heavenly ceiling. They discovered that the cosmos had depth. Not long after giving up our seat at the center of the solar system, humans then had to come to terms with our cosmic insignificance with unprecedented precision. As the solar system shrinks to one bright point in the distance, our sun is plainly now only one among the stars.
1: Our cosmic insignificance meaning that the space that we take up, even as we're rotating around the sun, is so small compared to the distance between us and other stars?
0: Yeah. We discovered that the stars were really, really far away, and if they're that far away, and we're just a small part of it, then it makes you feel like you're alone in a very big, empty room.
1: This is like um, all the sci-fi writing, realizing that the universe doesn't center around us. I mean, it's the same anxiety that the Pope and Martin Luther had in response to Copernicus's sun-centered theory, right? It's like, we are not the center of the universe, and therefore God may not be paying the most attention to us, and that's a real bummer. Because we think from our own experience that we are the most significant.
0: That's right. If, I mean, we say this metaphorically, but a lot of us live like the world revolves around us. And we found out that not only does the Earth not revolve around us, but the Earth is revolving around other things. And those other things aren't even that big of a deal.
1: Instruments probe the near and distant environments of space and open
0: new windows on the universe. But that parallax technique only works for the really close stars. Even from the two widest vantage points afforded by Earth's orbit, most of the stars are just too far away to see them noticeably move. Parallax gave scientists a feel for the cosmic neighborhood, and next they wanted to know how far away everything else was. Henrietta swan Leavitt was hired by Harvard University at the turn of the 19th century, just two years before a freshman, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, enrolled as an undergrad.
1: Okay, we're talking about a lady scientist here. I'm very interested.
0: Okay. Levitt worked as a human computer in the astronomy's Department, and she wasn't really allowed to be a scientist.
1: What does a human computer mean?
0: Well, she had a bachelor's degree, which was already pushing the limit of acceptable levels of education for a woman at the time, but at the university, women weren't allowed to use the telescopes.
1: Because it was too serious and manly.
0: Almost certainly. Men were doing the exciting work, while women like her were left to take care of what would be done today with software and interns. Henrietta swan Leavitt was put to work cataloging boxes of photographic plates of stars. Just 299 pictures of zillions of tiny little dots. You know, categorizing with that level of detail is my actual nightmare.
1: Yeah, you're a little bit of a big picture thinker for that kind of level of specificity.
0: Yeah, I want to think about the grandness of the universe, not not squinting at, at little pages.
1: Okay, so were you in Henrietta Leavitt's lab, you would not have joined her.
0: I wouldn't have made it.
1: You would have been <laughs> telescope only.
0: I would have been telescope only. But in that tedious work, Leavitt noticed something really interesting. While she was acting the part of Stellar Librarian, she noticed a relationship that no one else had before. Humans have known for centuries that some stars get brighter and dimmer like a steady cosmic heartbeat. Polaris, the North Star, isn't as steadfast as I'd thought. It's one of those heartbeat stars and it pulses every four days or so.
1: That's a really beautiful term, heartbeat star. Can (laughs) can you just describe that a little bit
0: further? Sure. Well, the star will, will grow in intensity for a couple of days, and then it'll get dimmer over the next couple of days, and it'll just sort of cycle brighter and dimmer over time. Sort of pulsing. It's pulsing, yeah. And some of them pulse faster than others. What Levitt noticed was that for those nearby heartbeat stars whose distance from Earth had been measured with the parallax method, She noticed that the faster the star's heartbeat, the brighter it was shining.
1: So a fast pulse meant a bright star. A slow pulse meant maybe a dimmer star.
0: So this might sound trivial, but if you imagine maybe you look out your window at night and you see two little lights on your window, it's hard to tell which one is a firefly on the glass and which is a distant truck headlight until maybe one of them starts blinking in a particular pattern that makes you think that it's a tiny insect in the same way Levitt's work meant that you could point your telescope at a tiny little distant beating star, measure its pulse to figure out how brightly it shines, and then compare how dim it actually looks here on Earth. And that way you can figure out how far away it is.
1: Wait, wait, I'm not understanding the connection just yet.
0: So in the same way that I get really confused when I look up at the stars and some of them are bright and some of them are dim, you can't really tell the difference between a really bright star that's far away and a really dim star that's close up. They're all just kind of a jumbled mess. But if one of them is blinking, and it's blinking in a way that means that it must be really, really, really bright, but here on Earth it still looks dim, that means it's got to be really far away. And today that's known as Levitt's Law, that relationship between the, the heartbeat of the star and how bright it is. Immediately, astronomers saw the value of that relationship of those heartbeat stars, and they started using them as a benchmark for comparing brightness. They're called standard candles. They're objects in space of known brightness that can be used to compare distances around the galaxy, like a map of lighthouses pulsing in the dark. Normal but quite unfamiliar stars and clouds of gas surround us as we traverse the Milky Way galaxy.
1: Standard candles because it's literally like a candle flickering in the night?
0: Well, no, because it's comparing the intensity of the star to the amount of light given off by a candle. A candle is like a unit of light.
1: Okay, cool. Okay, okay. And uh, just a side note, Levitt, she got a law. She was functionally a human computer, and then she got a law named after her for astronomy. Did she see fame and glory?
0: I don't know. Have you ever heard of Henrietta (laughs) Swan-Levitt? I have not. (laughs) Science has always been a team effort. Behind every big-name scientist, there are almost always a team of very talented people working in the background, and a lot of the, those people have been women, and a lot of those people have been forgotten. In just a few short years, the universe got a whole lot bigger. Levitt expanded the ruler that astronomers used to measure the distances to the stars from hundreds of light years long to 20 million. Oh, Actually, you know, I've got, I've got a question. Can I put you on the spot for a sec? Do you, do you know what a light year is?
1: Again, based on having read a decent amount of sci-fi, uh-huh. I can say with a zero amount of confidence uh, that a light year is the amount of time it takes for light to travel across space.
0: We're really close. We're really close.
1: That is kind of you. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but a, a light year is a measure of distance. It's how far light will get over the course of one year. So
1: Oh, so if, I was just inverse. Exactly. Okay.
0: So a light year is, I mean, light is really crazy fast. It's moving at three times 10 to the eighth power meters per second, which is like.
1: How do you know that off of the top of your head, Andrew?
0: <laughs> I took physics in high school.
1: I took physics in high school. <laughs> I did not retain that level of information.
0: So light is just crazy fast. And if you can imagine the incredible distance that light can go in a whole year, just just to, to help you visualize stuff, it takes close to a half hour For a radio signal, which is traveling at the speed of light, to go from Earth to Mars. And that's just within our own solar system.
1: Do we have on Earth experiences of light being slow? Like an experience that I would have had? Because I know you can watch stars in the night sky that are like exploding Mm -hmm. or whatever, but it actually already happened because of something about light years. But is there anything that happens on Earth that helps us experience light years? Does that question make sense? It
0: does. and. There is no distance that you can go on planet Earth that is far enough away that you will notice the speed of light. Cool. Which is wild. So
1: it's just a strong no.
0: It's a strong no. Using Levitt's law and the heartbeat stars, astronomers learned that our own sun is on the unremarkable outskirts of a vast pinwheel shaped cluster of billions of stars, the Milky Way galaxy.
1: We are within the Milky Way. That's right. I didn't know that. <laughs>
0: And as if that weren't enough, heartbeat stars were then found in fuzzy little dots that turned out to not only be stars, but huge clouds of billions more stars in whole galaxies of their own, millions of light years outside of our own Milky Way.
1: I feel like a weird combination of having read a lot of sci-fi and having not taken a lot of science classes means that when you're talking about things like galaxies, I'm not sure on a baseline what is real and what is science fiction so this is very helpful information for me personally
0: cool all right there was just so much more than our own galaxy and we weren't close to the center of any of it either this lonely scene the galaxies like dust is what most of space looks like this emptiness is normal the richness of our own neighborhood is the exception Levitt died of cancer at the age of 53. She lost her hearing in her 30s, and her work was constantly interrupted by ill health and family obligations. I really wish she could have been a part of what came after, because the work of measuring the universe wasn't over. The heartbeat stars that Levitt identified allowed scientists to plumb the depths 1,000 times deeper into space. Today's scientists use what's called the cosmic distance ladder as a hierarchy of progressively longer measuring sticks for probing further and further into space. The
1: cosmic distance ladder.
0: I know, I love that, right? Yeah. The stars closest to us in our corner of the galaxy can be measured with parallax, then using Levitt's law to measure with stars within our galaxy and even galaxies closest to ours. When the light originates so far away that it's barely perceptible by the time it arrives here on Earth, you have to dip into the Tully-Fisher relation or type 1a supernovae, or if it's really, 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 really far away, you'll have to observe redshifts with Hubble's law, but that's some dense physics for a different podcast. You know
1: it's bad when they get into the number-letter combination, but I guess what I'm hearing is that Levitt's law can allow us to measure things slightly farther away in light years, in Mm -hmm. millions of light years, and Mm -hmm. then if we're going further and further than that into all these different swirling galaxies, we're using even more new measurements to measure those distances like the scale isn't levitt scale isn't big enough overall and that's what the star ladder is
0: yeah the star ladder is is exists because we can measure close in distances with one technique but then we get into distances that are so far away that we have to find another another yardstick that's even longer to measure those middle distances. And what I love about this story is that an amazing insight was discovered by someone who was paid to stay out of the way and not to think too hard. And the thing that keeps bringing me back to this story is what it says about scale. There are ways to measure distance at one scale that at a certain point stop working. Measuring distances near and far are exactly the same as measuring far, but in practice they look very, very different. As we're exploring the universe, we're exploring the limits of our own capacity to perceive. Space, I think, will always be a scale beyond human comprehension. Our brains just didn't evolve to process that many zeros. But even where we haven't been able to internalize or make personal what those numbers mean, we've been able to build longer and longer rulers that are now approaching the maximum distance that can be measured in the universe. We can now measure the depth of space with incredible precision. But in many ways, it still remains unfathomable. By the light Oh, the stars. and that's a wrap folks this is Measure for Measure a limited series from the Ministry of Ideas the show is executive produced by Leah Rexman created by me Andrew Middleton and sound engineered by Greg Friedel our music is by Siraj Sindhu and Mackenzie Kugel thanks as always to Zachary Davis for his support if you enjoyed this podcast please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts you can learn more on our website ministryofideas.org measure or find us on Twitter at measure4m and Instagram at measure4measurepod that's with the number 4 you can also email us at measure4measurepod at gmail.com. That's measure4measure measure the number four. Thanks for listening. Made me dream by the light of the stars. By the light of the stars. Yo!